thank you so much, Ron Bonjean, for joining us. Uh, I'm Jake Ford uh, with the GPPR podcast. I'm Eric Dank, also with the GPPR podcast. And we are pleased to have Ron Bonjean as a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, Bonjean, you've worked as a consultant. Uh, you've worked on both the House and the Senate. Um, you've also held positions with the, the Commerce Department and in this most recent administration. So we're tremendously excited to have you uh, as a guest and just learn a little bit more about um, what you've been talking with the students um, on campus. So thank you again for yeah, your no, time. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so what, can, can you just start with uh, what, what have you been talking about in your discussion group? Well, we've been having a great time. So this past week, we talked about uh, communications regarding the Supreme Court nominations process, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool because um, they, they don't come around uh, very often. And to be able to, uh, to have a uh, discussion with folks, and I was really interested in their viewpoints, about how now the Supreme Court nominations process is like a mini political campaign. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the candidate is actually not a politician, is, a, um, is, a, is usually a judge, and uh, with a lot of legal experience, but no political experience. And so going through that is is uh, really you know really interesting. Other things we've done is we talked about we had Mike Allen in who um, you know uh, has founded Axios. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had him talking about um, you know media coverage in the Twitterverse, um, and we had a packed crowd for that. That yeah. was really really fantastic. Um, and so you know we just had a, a variety of topics, but basically my topic the, the overall thematic is are we at a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Is this the new normal? As a day, I, and now, now a news day is really a week's worth of news condensed into one day. And um, we're at a velocity where you will check, your, you know, in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I check my email, I see if anybody's called, I check my email, and then I go to Twitter. And I'm like, what happened this <laughs> yeah. morning? What happened? You know what I mean? Sure. Before yeah. coffee, you check the Twitter. <laughs> right. So you just go, well, you you go straight into coffee it. when you check Twitter. <laughs> right. you know? You're drilling moves pretty quick. And also, you're like, what do I need to be concerned about today? Mm-hmm. And that is that a new normal way of operating? And it might very well be for the next few years or for two, for Donald Trump, say, if he has a second term. Yeah. Um, so... Interesting. And, and before we get into the, the topics, have you, has anything surprised you about working this closely with students? You know what I love about working with students is they have a fresh perspective on what's going on, mm-hmm. and they ask some pretty insightful questions that was, I'm really surprised at, that a lot of, yeah, that, um, you know, I felt like a lot of these people that come to discussions are very well informed, mm-hmm. um, and track the news closely uh, as if they're Kremlinologists. And I love that because then I feel like it can ha- get to more of the granular detail about what's sure. going on as opposed to trying to explain something. Mm-hmm. They already have that that base, that foundation, so then I can go a couple layers. We, I, or a guest, we can talk a couple layers deeper. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the topic for uh, the public policy review this year is uncertainty. Um, how is uncertainty being felt in the public relations and communications field? And has the political climate and, like you said, the velocity of news, has that changed uh, how you operate in any way? Yes. Yeah, so the, that's a great question. The, um, you know, clearly after the election, uh, we've thrown the playbook out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think anyone can predict what will happen tomorrow or next week. 
and that gives uh, put brides a very, very uncertain atmosphere in the communication space, especially when you're dealing, well, there's two types. There's political communications and business communications. Um, and they combine when you talk about public policy. And so the uncertainty of the environment around public policy right now creates an uncertainty in the business community and uncertainty in the political communications environment, which means that when you're trying to push a message um, consistently, though the, the goalposts can change about the, the, the actual endpoints can change in terms of the public policy that can move rapidly, they can change on a dime. I have had conversations with, uh, I just had lunch with a senior administration official who came and sat down at the table and looked like they needed a, like a month off. And they just seemed shell-shocked. And like, you know, we can't consistently push something on a daily basis because the goal, because the things just move to the left, they move to the right. One day we're moving this, but then the decision is made to go in the opposite direction. It's very difficult um, to be successful because in order to move the ball down the field, you have to go forward um, and have metrics and have goals to get to to get to, to get to the one yard line, right? And when you're constantly going backwards or to the side or this, um, it provides a very uncertain climate, and um, the anxiety levels go are much much higher. And I, you know, it also affects, there's a human element to all this, too. I mean, I was at the Radio Television Correspondents Association dinner on Wednesday evening. Okay. People are tired. They are <laughs> exhausted. The, the level of enthusiasm at a 7.30 p.m. sit-down dinner that goes to 10, you could feel the energy level seeping out of the room as it got later because people are just like, oh, my God. They're just, like, done. Um, you know, they're fried. They just need to keep constantly following the ball. And the ball's going over here and there <laughs> like that. So anyway. Is, is that a, a unique challenge to covering this administration with just the proliferation yes. of uses of Twitter? Because I'm, I'm sure those challenges were present in past administrations and the, in the staff. And there was much more with past administrations. There was much more of a trajectory of, of yes, there were, you know, there were issues, but... This is a different administration because Donald Trump has come in as a disruptor of Washington institutions. That's it. He's coming in to take a wrecking ball to smash everything mm -hmm. up. The supporters love it. And so that means um, everything is being upturned on end. The way things used to be aren't the way things are done now. And there's a lot of people that are still grappling with that mm -hmm. and still have a pre-election mindset that no, that's not the way we do things, or that's not the way things are supposed to be. But it is the way things are happening now, and um, that mental hurdle I've known, noticed among media, press, you know, report, I mean, uh, public relations professionals, everyone. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that have a tough time switching gears and adapting yeah. to that, um, and kind of hoping that maybe there will be a pattern that emerges out of all this that they can operate on. Mm -hmm. I am operating out of the fact that there probably won't be patterns. The pattern is that there isn't one. Sure. And if you can operate and adapt into that atmosphere, you can be much, you'll, you'll, you'll survive and you can be much better off with it. Believe it. Um, so something you said there kind of reminded me a little bit about the uncertainty even within the party. I mean, you mentioned that uh, you have uh, 
press uh, public relations people, you have the media that are unsure of where things are going, but I think to some extent that might be true too with members of Congress and senators. I mean, particularly this past week as we watched Senator Corker and Senator Flake, uh, even former President Bush publicly criticize uh, President Trump. Do you think this is a rift in the Republican Party? and? Does, the, does that frustration change communication strategy in any way? So um, there's, a rift, there's a rift in both parties. For sure. And we're getting a lot more attention because we're in charge, um, and which makes a lot of sense. There's no question about it. Um, I think that um, uh, it does make it, it – there is a rift, and – um, this reminds me, this is sort of a very, this is a very, it's very similar actually to the Tea Party um, in 2010, 2011, um, that started moving, um, that started pressuring lawmakers and threatening them in primaries that if they weren't voting in a particular way that they were going to get out primary. Well, it actually turned out over a couple of years that the, the Republicans absorbed the Tea Party. And you don't really hear about those guys anymore because Republicans don't really lose their primaries. Why? Because they just absorbed, they absorbed it and they moved in that direction. Okay. I see that happening here. Um, maybe not as holistically, but you do see someone like a Senator Jeff Flake, who became, well, who was formerly a mainstream sort of a conservative mainstream guy, who ended up. Out of the out of the quote unquote stream, so to speak, because his constituents were going this way, but he decided he went right and he decided to go left or just not move at all and adapt to that to that voting base. It all tipped with his book, right. and um, which his constituents didn't like. And so, you know, while on the surface he gave a speech about President Trump and leadership and decorum. And um, you know how it's improper and inappropriate, and we need to have a better way of governing. Underneath the surface, he ignored his voting base, and he decided to stick to one, to to to, to the way that he had done things. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that was largely ignored in the media coverage. I'm like, wait a minute. But and also, um, he could have stayed and fought. Right. You know, and put his yep. planted flag and say, you know what, that's wrong. I'm going to get a voice of reason. That's wrong. Don't think so. And so now um, he just sort of wave the white flag. And that's, you know, that's his choice. And he'll be somebody that will be on Twitter and will get floor mm -hmm. speeches. and Presumably write another hot-selling book. A hot-selling book. Yeah. But the leverage he has is, is largely gone. Um, because he's already waved the white flag. Sure. Yeah. So, and and he knew, probably knew he was going to lose. He was going to lose his primary. So it's frustrating. That, that's an interesting point. And, and you, you bring up how the Republican Party they, they absorbed a lot of that energy from the Tea Party movement in, in 2010. And the the Tea Party movement was built around ideology. Is, is would it make it more difficult now for the the Republican Party to absorb people, that energy because it, it's centered around a, a, a person? Well, here's a, people are well. Trump is symptomatic of a larger issue of that sure. people are really angry. Right. And people are really angry in the Democratic Party, and that's why Bernie Sanders 
um, became such a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And Trump gave the, the those people a way to channel that energy. Yeah. So as Trump starts bashing away institutions, those people love it because they're just tired of us. They're tired of Washington, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, so I don't think the movement follows is wrapped around Donald Trump. In fact, I think if Donald Trump doesn't, if there isn't change, he will just he will be discarded, or you know he may end up winning a second term because of his ability to play campaign warfare so effectively mm -hmm. yeah. against conventional using unconventional weapons against a conventional candidate. Mm -hmm. So, but even if he won two terms, like the the desire for change, if there isn't one, will grow further, and that means it's going to get worse. Um, be, before it gets better, yeah. and who would that presidential candidate emerge to lead our country, and where will we be at as a society if we just remain in the same place, and if there aren't really substantive changes where people feel like their lives are getting better, mm -hmm. um, and that's and Republicans could lose the House because of that. Sure, um, we could end up. I don't. I don't think the CS losing the Senate. We could lose the presidency because of that. The ball goes into the Democrats' court. They're no better off. Their leaders are like 70 years old, plus 75 yeah. plus. I mean, there's no, there's no youth to, you know, to this, to their movement, and yeah. they need to identify other folks. Now I know that, that there's a lot of people out there in the government, you know, who are governors, who mm -hmm. are more qualified, but Donald Trump came out of nowhere, um, you know, as a Hollywood celebrity yeah. type of person. That could be for the left. Like the left could end up, you could end up having a Hollywood celebrity emerge out of the mm -hmm. left, you know, capturing sure. that anger. I don't know, but uh, anyway, I hope that. Hope yeah, that. yeah, that's that's yeah. interesting. Should should there be, for for both parties, that there's a there's a question of the bench. I mean, there's been talks of Joe Biden perhaps running. Yeah. In 2020, um, should should both parties attempt to identify those non-traditional candidates? I mean, mirroring what Trump's success looked like in I mean, it's, it's all about, um, you know, for Trump, policy is secondary, it's all about winning. Mm -hmm. You have to have a candidate that's willing to do anything to win, to get there to win, right? And so that's what, that's the problem that Hillary had. She focused on policy and had her binders and you know, walked into those debates ready to debate the issues, which is a normal thing. And then you yeah. had a candidate who understood the power of medium of television mm -hmm. and understood the messaging uh, over the policy. In fact, on the campaign planes, Trump would never read policy books. In fact, there's one story, famous story, where he was handed um, a policy briefing before the debate. And a policy book before the debate that had little tabs marked environment, energy, defense, foreign policy. And he looked at his team and he goes, what is this? And he said, it's your binder, this is your briefing book. And he said, do I own a paper company? And he said, no, I do not. Then get this thing out of there. And he just turned the TV back on. Wow. And that was it. And, um, you know, so anyway, um, hey, look, there could be an Oprah Winfrey who comes out of the left out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. People laughed at that. There was an, actually I talked about it. And it was kind of fun. We talked about it in discussion groups. Like we had dozens of photos up on the screen uh, from left and right. Who could be the next nominee for you know all over the place? 
And I said, what about Oprah, guys? Just what about her? Yeah. And the next day, there was a story. Oprah Winfrey, maybe for 20 You were a source. I was you, a source. I, you know, I was clairvoyant. <laughs> I'm saying there may be a special power. Um, anyway, I'm just kidding. She, but, may, she may have a spot for you on the campaign, I think. But what, yeah, right. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that when we all, a lot of us in 2015, when you heard Donald Trump saying, like, whatever, that's yeah. a joke, and you don't take it seriously. Well, we're in such a different environment where people are so pissed that if somebody like an Oprah Winfrey, sure. who was a bazillion, who's a bazillionaire, a media mogul, understands the power of, of image, um, you know, you just never know these days. I don't take anything for granted anymore. And of course, we've heard Mark Cuban's name too. Uh, yeah, as sure. Well. So switching switching gears a little bit. Um, you're the only person to be the lead spokesperson in both the House and the Senate. Uh, I was just curious of how the job was different between chambers, if at all. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, in the, uh, it's regarding the rules of the chambers. Okay. So in the House, the rules are really set out so that um, when you, you you schedule a bill for floor consideration and it goes through a normal procedure, and so. You will start out on a Monday or Tuesday with suspension bills on the calendar that lead to the big votes later on in the week. Okay, um, so you can provide for, for put together a communications plan based upon that kind of a schedule. That um, you can plan out exactly when your press conferences are going to be, um, who's going on TV, who's doing what. In the Senate, the rules are much more arcane and are much more loosey goosey, um, where deals can be cut. And then can we go to you know? Then you can get get to floor action. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times it's a hurry up and wait situation in the Senate, and that's what's so frustrating to House uh, lawmakers who don't understand the Senate institution. That's one of the things that was interesting to me when I'd be in the House when I would go to meetings with House Republicans at their weekly meeting. They would be very frustrated and say, "Gosh, those darn Senate, the darn." They wouldn't say Senate Republicans. They'd say the Senate. The bills we pass keep getting, the Senate would do something, but they just do something. I sit there and hear that. Then I'd go to the Senate, and the Senate guys would say, those House guys, they just don't get it. We need to, we need to figure out a deal. We need to figure out how we're going to get this through, you know, and we need to be adults about it. Mm -hmm. And so I like to call the House, I like to say that the House is Main Street. They're the small shop owners, districts. Mm -hmm. that voters are walking into, and um, the uh, senator, the Senate is more like Wall Street. It's just more and more of corporate, more of CEO level. Um, you're thinking about a global sort of an estate and national thinking, sure. you know, and that a lot of issues and, pro you know, issues and answers to those issues pop up in the House, solutions, mm -hmm. and the louder ones get over to the Senate, and then the, then the CEOs look at those, <laughs> and figure out how best they can move those flames forward. And it's a really interesting thing. And what's unfortunate is that the the Senate is becoming much more like the House rhetorically. Right, okay. With the uh, erosion of uh, decorum, with the erosion of, you know, of the, of the polite communications that go on. Uh, because a number of House Republicans and House Democrats have gone on now and been elected as Senate. And the way they operated there, they operate, they, they operate here and in the Senate. Do you find do you find that you prefer doing communications for one body or the other, yes. or that one's easier than another? Yes, I will. I would say it's easier to communicate with a plan in the house 
so you can get all these people behind you and you can plan it easier. But I love the Senate because it's a chess game. Because you're watching these different senators move the ball and, and you don't quite know exactly what's going to happen. And there's so much a layers of intrigue uh, to things. Personalities matter, not just the policy in those that, that respect. And, um, you know, um, and, and so that's a blast. I really, really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much of a smaller institution too. Sure. So I mean, you have you have a hundred senators. You have a, you have a small well, now there are a lot more media around, but you have it's much more of a collegial uh, operation, so to speak. And I, I imagine the communication strategy in the Senate being a more august body uh, would be different than the House because. Is, is re-election ever on the on the forefront of the, the strategy around communication on, in the House compared to the Yeah, it well, is, sure. Is you know, term? I think in both, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, because a third of the Senate's always up, mm-hmm. um, that the, the communications don't really change. There's not much, but there's a, there, because, you know, you're more worried about in the House of, quote unquote, losing your majority mm-hmm. constantly because of those election cycles. Um, as opposed to the Senate leadership where you kind of look at the landscape like this cycle where they're not as concerned about it because there are so many more Democrats up than Republicans. Yeah. Um, where we could lose, we could potentially lose a couple of Senate races, but not, it wouldn't um, affect our, our net, the net, you know, the net positive. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And a- another interesting facet of, of your career is your work at the Commerce Department. Yeah. Um, so the... I'm curious of how the messaging differed from the Commerce Department from your time in Congress, obviously focusing more on, on economic issues, and how you think that's evolved from your time there, and if you were working there right now. Yeah, um, so the way I ended up at the Commerce Department was that I was with the Senate, the Senate uh, Republican Majority Leader, Trent Lott. He resigned his post in 2002 after a big scandal regarding some comments he had made. Yeah. Um, and so... I had been, you know, I always agree, I always want to play well in the sandbox with others, and the Bush administration really appreciated the work that I had done with them. And um, I was asked to uh, join the Commerce Department because the president's best friend, Don Evans, was uh, was the former finance chair during the campaign, and um, they needed somebody to, to, to uh, run the show there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had never worked in a federal agency before, so mm-hmm. I... You know, I, I I had just worked in the Senate Majority Leaders. It was a very nice place, very ornate, fine china. And um, <laughs> you go into the Commerce Department, and I was sworn in in a back room full of uh, full of old stacks of papers. And you raise your right hand and welcome to our place. You know, <laughs> you join the club. Welcome yeah, to you're you're a Commerce, and you're yeah. like, well, and so but what was interesting was twofold. One is that yes, this revolved around the nation's economy, and so Commerce Department has a number of agencies within it that deal with economic issues from the International Trade Administration mm-hmm. um, to uh, Bureau uh, to um, uh, Bureau of Economic Statistics mm-hmm. to a number of to a number of ones. They're kind of all quite. It doesn't there does commerce doesn't make a lot of sense because there's not a consistency in the subagencies, yeah. but they're all put there. Um, the other and 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 what was interesting is we flew to a number of second world countries um, like Bulgaria or Czech Republic. Um, you may consider them first world, but you know, sort of second teetering on the edge of first to offer them market economy stats mm-hmm. and 
you know, in terms of our trade issues. And inter interestingly, learning how the world works um, and how they see the U.S. and how lucky we are to be yeah. Americans is really amazing. So that was one level. And then the other level was because we, I worked for Secretary Evans and he was the president's best friend, Don Evans was the president's fixer. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who would fly around with particular messages to presidents of countries. Um, for instance, the Iraq War. Um, leading up to it, Don Evans was integral in um, providing key messages to, like for instance, to the president of Bulgaria, who's on the National Security Council at the UN, or the UN Security Council. Um, and, the, and um, you know, while we were there, under the guy, uh, uh, under the auspices of providing that market economy status, he was also giving him a specific message from the president. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I didn't know that until I started seeing it from my own eyes, hearing it from my own ears, you know, seeing it with my own eyes, and then the president calling and saying, what's the progress on that? I'm like, wow, I'm in something bigger yes. than I thought I was. Yeah. I'm like, this is really neat to be at the seat of history. Because mm -hmm. I thought going from the Senate where you're seeing history being made legislatively, uh, especially post 9 11, when we we're, we're in a totally different atmosphere, to going to commerce, I felt like, well, I'm being given a break to kind of chill out at commerce and enjoy learning about the nation's economy. No, it was definitely um, very impactful. Yeah. And some of the issues I imagine you touched on in your time in the Commerce Department are being rehashed today. Things like globalization, trade. Obviously, there, there's a move to a more of a uh, inwards focus mm -hmm. and, and in this administration. Can, can you touch on like how those things have kind of evolved? Yeah, well, you know, um, that's just interesting because we were always involved with saying free trade is good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and advocating the uh, job growth of free trade. Now, you're, now, if you work for the International Trade Administration or for the Commerce International, the, the Commerce's uh, International Trade Office, um, you have, you're dealing, you're not, the message just isn't like free, free, you know, free trade, it's free and fair trade. Sure. What are the fair, what are deals are fair? And how can we create more uh, fair structures within these deals to help our workers in certain states, mm -hmm. you know, um, that are pretty angry? Um, at the way the economy is right now for them. Um, so there's a big difference um, in terms of the philosophy between the two. And it's one that, you know, you have our Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross who's come in advocating that position versus a, um, a Gary Locke for the Obama administration who had a completely opposite point of view. And that's okay. I mean, you have to go where you're going where the voters are, mm -hmm. and that's where uh, a number of people, you know, at the same time, the Republican Party itself is at a crossroads here between the populist free and fair trade and those who believe free trade is good, and yeah. I think that still hasn't really worked itself out yet. Um, so, it's, it's, it's funny because we're, we're both from Pittsburgh. Oh, <clears throat> and uh, we've—I I, I don't want to speak for Eric, but I've seen—I'm from an old mill town. I was actually an old nuclear power plant town, but now it's an old mill town. So we've seen globalization. We've seen industries rise and fall. Um, and, and I don't know if it's, if it's a messaging thing. Cause it's interesting. You, you bring up the Obama administration, Commerce Department, compared to this one, and if it's if it's just a messaging difference, it, it's, does that entail a substantive? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I don't think we've ever used, like, I'd say after the election, 
I or around November, but you know, I had never used the word globalization. Likewise. I had never yeah. even thought of <laughs> Yeah. But now it's much more in the mainstream. I'm yeah. Talking about the globalization and meaning that meaning that our energy is going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's an it's a really interesting piece of propaganda that is very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of policy, I guess we have to look at the data to see what's really happening with our trade agreements. Are jobs hemorrhaging out of places like Pittsburgh? Um, you know, where's that ripple effect going? And are we, you know, what's going on with our trade deficit? Mm-hmm. And what's going on with these deals? Are they fair? Or are they not fair? Now, I have not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, um, a very handsome man and well-spoken, but I'm also <laughs> I'm also uh, uh, also very shallow on some of the policy. So I haven't done a lot of studying regarding the trade issue, and I haven't really been involved with it. I think we will be soon on our, with our public relations firm, so we'll be studying up on it a little bit further. So yeah, no, it, it's just interesting because I think one of the things that Democrats, especially in, in 2016, failed were there's a dignity to working in in any in any job, especially yeah. in those blue collar manual, you know, we point to all the coal mines and uh, all the steel mills. That there there's a dignity conveyed in those jobs, and I don't think there was enough of a focus placed on replacing that with something immediately for those workers right now. Yeah. Um, that the Democrats can definitely learn a lesson from, and that the Republicans did a much better job on. Yeah. No, I think that. Um there is nothing more valuable in a job because it gives people self-confidence, mm-hmm. self-esteem, a purpose. Um, and when they see jobs flowing out of the out of the country, and they don't have a way to transition to a new career, that can be that's a very dangerous situation. And I think having the ability, uh, having Republicans to say, here is here is the way that a person can have a job a new job and a better job in this new economy and this new technological era, um, if you take these classes, if you do these things, this is where it's going to lead to. I think it's a, it's a much better message mm-hmm. um, than just saying, you know, free trade is great, um, and here are the benefits of free trade. I think yeah. people are seeing that, that there, are, there are problems with our trade agreements. Yeah. Or just saying, shut the coal mills down and right. forget about the people. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is not because they vote. So yeah, this is the first time in God since I don't remember the last time Pennsylvania went for a Republican in the yeah. president nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, yeah. So it's it manifests. It did. It manifested itself exactly. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to keep you too much longer. So mm-hmm. I figured we'd wrap up with with a kind of a two part question. I. Would be interested if you had any advice for any of our listeners who are interested in po- political communications and strategy as a career. And secondly, if you could just let us know when your next uh, discussion group is and what your topic is going to be, just a little advertising for you. Yeah, there. you got it. So I would recommend for anyone who wants to go into political communications to get as much writing experience as possible. The, it's so valuable to be able to express yourself clearly and concisely. Um, and to get that start done, get that started as soon as, as soon as you can, because um, the it'll be easier for you over time. A and B, in order to get in the door um, with campaigns, with uh, and policymakers, 
to show that you've already written material for like, since your school newspaper or for your internships, wherever you're at, mm -hmm. to have already some case studies that you can bring in the door, writing samples is, is, is such a huge thing, I think. And to start reading a lot about what's going on. It's hard to keep up, um, but to start reading a lot what's going on on the side if you can. Trying to treat it as a hobby, so to speak. <laughs> and I mean, I'll tell you, it's so difficult for anyone, I think, to try to encompass what's going on in the news right now in a timely manner. Like, right. when you wake up, what can you, how much can you digest <laughs> before you have to go to work? Mm -hmm. And you sort of have to pick and choose, and that's why these aggregator morning tip sheets sure. and things like that are, are helpful. But um, I also find reading longer form pieces on the weekends can really be enlightening, mm -hmm. because while we're all read, a lot of us political, political watchers read political playbook mm -hmm. and Axios and these things in the morning, you gotta, you gotta get out of that and, and um, take a break and try to be deep, try to think a little bit deeper about what's going on. Oh, and so artists with that, yes. our discussion group is uh, on Thursdays at four o'clock. Okay. This week, by the way, we had waffles, which is really cool. Wow. I think it's the first time a discussion group has ever had waffles, by the Shout way. Shout out to the last. Yeah. Give me all your secrets out, Ron. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. They do take a little bit to make, but we bring them out, everybody gets up and grabs oh, them, which is pretty cool. Very fun. Um, very fun. Um, and so next week we have Antonia Ferrier. She is the communications director for Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And she's coming in to talk about um, the relationship between the White House and Congress and also the hyperpartisanship in Washington. Sounds so, yeah, great. it'll be a really good, good discussion. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ron. We really appreciate it. This has been thank fantastic. You. We've learned a ton. I'm yeah. sure our listeners will as well. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah. Well, thank everyone for uh, tuning into the GPPR podcast and stay in touch for the next episode. Thanks.